Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hi, and welcome to episode 25 of the Tube to Table podcast, Comfort versus Compliance. Happy New Year. We're so excited to be back with our first episode of 2020, and we are thrilled to start off with a topic that hopefully helps everybody across the board, no matter where you are in your weaning journey. I'm Jenny, um, and I'm a feeding therapist at Thrive with Spectrum Pediatrics, and I'm uh, joined by my colleague and coworker, Heidi. Hi there, Heidi. Hi, Jenny. Heidi's also a feeding therapist. She's a speech therapist. I'm an OT. You guys are, most of you are um, return listeners, but we just thought we'd kick off the new year with a little reintroduction. Um, And so, um, how was your New Year, Heidi? How was the it, start to It New was Year? good. We actually had a great time. Oh, good. I will say that we went to an interesting restaurant with some <laughs> interesting foods that we probably wouldn't have chosen ourselves, and some of them were good, but some of them we ate because it was New Year's Eve, and we were with friends who were spending a lot of money on it. Yeah. <laughs> so I could, but I could see a little bit how kids feel sometimes when they encounter foods that they're not familiar with or aren't sure about. And it it was a good introduction or reminder for me on what it's like for some of our kids with unfamiliar, unfamiliar foods. It was interesting. Yeah, Yeah. it is. We had the opposite. We had a home, we had families come to our house and we hosted and we had all of the, (laughs) all of the comfort familiar foods. So food wasn't a part of ours, but we had a big trivia um, Trivial Pursuit game, which is what we do every New Year's Eve. And it was super fun. My team did fun. not win. I'm not thrilled about that, <laughs> but that's okay. Next year. Um, Next year. Yeah. So this this week's topic is about the difference between finding when children find comfort in food and eat for that reason versus being eating for compliance. And most people um, who come to us may not realize that the successes that their child has been having, if they've had any, if they haven't, it's okay. It's still worth a listen here. The compliance piece of it is what's driving the progress. And what we know from the work that we do at Thrive is that when children find comfort and safety and trust in food, even if the volumes are smaller, the prognosis is not only better for the short term and the long term, but it can also lead to better results sooner. Um, there, do, there does tend to be a waiting period. Um, so I thought maybe we could just talk a little bit about what compliance looks like as opposed to comfort. Um, since we spend a lot of time talking about responsive feeding, we don't spend a lot of time talking about that other piece and what it looks like. And Heidi, you were, you were talking about some of the common things that we see when we have a new family come to us. Sure. And yeah. One of the things, just to back up one second about something you just said that made me think of something else, is you said they were seeing some progress. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to reframe that a little bit, is it depends on what kind of progress. Exactly. Many people will say, well, we'll take any kind of progress and we can undo the other things later. So I just wanted to reframe a little bit what we're defining as progress, which is self-directed, self-regulated eating. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe reframing the word progress a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's so measure. I, it's it's. I think in traditional feeding therapy models, which is this compliance focused therapy, and we're both, you know, full disclosure, that's what we did before this. You know, that's really all that is available out there for feeding therapists and feeding therapy for kids. And so, um, you know, there's no judgment here, but the focus of those therapies, the progress that's measurable in those therapies that's considered progress, which we don't consider progress, is getting kids to eat, not letting them eat or helping them want to eat. That's progress in our mind, right? Wouldn't you say? the let, right, That's that right. self-regulation, self-direction. You're get, letting them have the space and the comfort and the trust to learn to do it and, and um, the desire to do it, which is that right. comfort piece. Right. So with that little, sorry, Jenny, no, no, that little re, re, um, recircle there, but uh, what, what I would say, some of the things that we see are kids opening their mouths yeah. when something comes at them, yeah, which is different than opening their mouths so that they're signaling that they want to eat. Yes. It's probably the most subtle mm-hmm. thing that lots of people will see. Mm-hmm. It, it ends up looking like, I want it, I don't want it, I want it, I don't want it. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems to us pretty consistently that the kids automatically open their mouth and then realize they don't want it, so they close it. And and that's a big difference for anybody that's either fed another child in their family or seen other kids um, eat, which I think a lot of families that struggle with feeding, you tend to kind of hone in in the restaurant on the other children that are eating or what your friends and family come over. So you kind of know what I'm talking about. That's a very different thing than a child initiating by leaning towards a spoon or participating in the self-feeding should they be old enough and able. Um the, the kind of passively just opening their mouth and accepting or tolerating food is not the same and it does not equal long-term over, you know, it does not equal overcoming feeding challenges in the long-term. People think that the more you get kids to eat, that that's just practice. And we find that that to be the, the opposite to be true. It, com- it, it complicates their ability to understand food. So the opening the mouth, the other thing I notice as an OT a little bit is some of the, um, the child might, there's a lot, often when we look at videos in our intake process or of see a kid in person, the, the environment's really loving. Obviously there's a parent and a child and they love each other and the parents are trying desperately to help their child learn to eat. But what we see is some of the more subtle stuff that's not always easy to pick up. Um, in fact, sometimes we work with families for a very intensive period of time, and then we still have to say, send a video, let's, or let's sit down and watch a meal again, and we can still see some of these things sneaking back in. It's not an easy thing to, to get rid of. So the other physical signs that I can see sometimes are fisted hands in little ones, infants and young toddlers. Or um, children who are leaning back against their, um, like, seat, the back of their chair, or leaning back. Normally, when you're eating, you're volitionally leaning forward if you have the trunk control to do so. And so that's something to kind of look out for and just know. Something else that I see a lot, I think, are kids who start yawning or looking really sleepy and tired. Yeah. Even I we hear it a lot. Oh, but you just got up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a really passive way of being compliant, but also not eating because yeah. 
parents start to, especially caring parents who are watching their children's cues well, see their child start to yawn and they think, oh, I'm, they're tired of this or they're tired generally or they didn't sleep well or whatever. And they end the mealtime and take them down. Mm-hmm. And then the kids perk back up again yeah. because they were using one of their small little passive tricks yeah. to end the meal without being deliberately um, refusing. Yeah. And initiation seems to be a theme in all of these. When a child's initiating... That's one of the big ways you know that they're comfortable and interested. That doesn't mean that child children never initiate when they're being just compliant. <laughs> but um, let's just talk developmentally about what initiation looks like. For an infant that or a child that has severe motor impairments um, or developmental impairments, initiation may look like looking at the food or looking at your your family member, the person that's feeding you. It may not be reaching, leaning, doing any of that stuff. That might be too soon. And often what we see in the early days of working with families is that there's not a pause to allow the initiation to happen. So you can very easily pause for just a second and wait and allow your child to see where their eyes land, whether they're little or big. See where their, see where their eyes land. See what they want to do next. If your child isn't going to be using a vocalization, babble, you know, some type of sound that they're making or telling you if they're older and have words or looking at, leaning towards, opening the mouth. If they're not going to be doing that initiation piece to restart it, that's a pretty good sign because that can happen even with very de- kids that are at a very, you know, young developmental level. If there's no attempt at reinitiation, it's a pretty good indicator that your child's probably eating too to because they've been conditioned to be compliant and um that's just a nice test i think if you're not sure to do a couple of pauses one of the things i've told families over the years is i didn't mean for it to rhyme but it does is (laughs) when in doubt wait it out yeah if you're in a space of doubt if they're initiating or not look away set down your spoon (laughs) most families feel this urgency Mm-hmm. that they can identify afterwards, but they feel this urgency to get as many bites in as they can before their kiddo quits accepting. Yes. They feel like they have this short window of time in order to accomplish their task. So they work really hard to get it in. And if you look at the key motivators in that, it, again, it's getting the kid to eat, eat something. Yes. Yeah. So that that's very adult directed it still. Is. And it may end up in a few a few fewer bites, but most families will say that they only get one or two extra bites in by doing that trick anyway. If, if even that much, they may get a couple of extra in, but it's not, the trade-off isn't worth it. No, it's when not. When you look at the calories and volume and versus comfort. Yeah. And the other argument we hear from very well-meaning, caring and devoted feeding therapists and parents who've been trained by those feeding therapists is that a child needs the motor practice. So we have to get them eating because if they st- if they eat less because we're letting them become comfortable or we're engaging in responsive feeding, then their mouth isn't getting the practice that they need. And we just wanted to point out that there is no evidence that we are aware of and we scour the evidence um, that suggests that that is true. There is evidence, however, that suggests that purposeful, self-directed, um, meaningful to the eater, child, uh, that type of eating does build skills while eating for compliance or eating because of someone else's plan or idea, whether it be a motor or a behavioral um, emphasis, has a less impactful 
you know, it has less impact on their ability to gain a skill too. So while it may look like a child is getting more in the short term, if they're doing it for compliance, it does not mean that they're better off in the long run. It seems like it would. I understand why people fall into that trap. I really do. But it, it does not equal that. And then the other thing that's really confusing, I think, for families is that, as we pointed out in other episodes, just culturally and, and just in our families, we were there's, there's compliance built into so much of what's wrong with the way that we feed ourselves and feed our kids. And so, you know, you got to clean your plate before. You have to have this food before you can have that food. You know, I don't know a single adult my age that didn't grow up with some of that somewhere along the line, whether it was from their parents or an aunt or an uncle or a teacher or, or a, um, some other, you know, caregiver. And what we know, even in the general population and kids without tubes, that that externally driven eating puts kids at risk of having challenges with feeding. And so we certainly don't want to use those compliance-driven strategies on our most fragile eaters, as Heidi's pointed out in other episodes. And I just want to take some of the burden off of families. This is extremely hard to see in yourself. It is. I've had a hard time seeing it in myself. I know there's times if I look back when I forget that I am a powerful force in kids. They like to please me. Yeah. And they like to please their parents because they like us and they enjoy us. Mm-hmm. And so we need to work hard to control our own influence. Mm-hmm. We all like to please people that we care about. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's it's a good motivator in society, actually. Yeah. But not when it comes to food, particularly at this stage for these fragile eaters. It, it is much more powerful, much more damaging, and much more influential for these early, early eaters. Mm-hmm. Than, and so therefore, it also can have a longer effect yes, later. It can. I think it, it might be helpful to point out that this subtle difference that Heidi's talking about and the kind of challenge of identifying whether or not you're doing it is is pretty universal. By the time families come to us at Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics, they usually, or listen to our podcast, they usually kind of get that some of the more forceful approaches or really strong behavioral approaches are definitely negative. In ter- and, and what we mean is you have to eat this even if you're crying and, you know, that's the expectation. Or holding them down. Or holding and- kids down and having them take a bite, keeping their hands held under the high chair or whatever. So most people, and if you, most people have already gotten to that point. And if you haven't, this is a great time to start. We'd be, we'd love to have a conversation with you about it. Um, and other episodes, certainly we address some of those more strong um, and definitely documented as having a negative long-term impact on oral intake um, and the relationship with food. But by the time most families get to us, they get that. And what they're, they're having um, feeding sessions. Parents often call them feeding sessions instead of meals when they're stuck in compliance land or um, a feed versus a meal or lunch or a snack. Um, and so kind of checking about how you feel like the, the meals are going. Do they feel like sessions? Do they feel like um, exercises and something that you have to be doing? Or do they feel like part of your routine? That's one really good check to see if you're doing it. Another way to check and see if you're doing it is watch a video of yourself feeding your child. Most par- Most parents that we work with can see it easier in hindsight. But when you're in the moment, it just feels like what you're supposed to be doing. And um, 
the other thing that's really important to know that does tend to get somehow, even though people know that kids should be eating for internal drives, sometimes there's still rewards built into eating. And the rewards can be, you can have your iPad after you finish this. You you know, you can have five minutes on your iPad after you finish this, or you can play with that toy after you finish this, or you can get down if you're finished, or, or, or the reward is love and praise and good job, which we think of as such a positive thing. But if the child isn't wanting to do it, and they're getting rewarded for doing something they don't understand, they don't want, and they're not comforted by, then you're in compliance land. You're not in the comfort place. And again, just to say a little bit, the value, because we do this so frequently, there is a value to having someone help you look for that, which is one of the reasons why we more frequently do in-person weans than remote weans. But even when we do remote ones, we spend a lot of time with video review or FaceTime meals because it's really subtle. Mm -hmm. And sometimes for kids who are, especially for kids who aren't verbal, Mm-hmm. that they're very intuitive into emotions and faces. And just the look of relief on a parent's face mm-hmm. can probably, for some of the more intuitive, emotionally driven kids, they, they can tell. Yeah, they, they know. And nobody likes to eat a meal with tension. So it, it, just make sure that it's something that is, you're aware of and paying attention to and take some steps. Totally. And if you need help too, if you can't see it when you're looking and you're, you have a trusted person in your life that can help you see, give a listen to this episode or talk to you about what to look for and you still aren't sure, then it's time to reach out for help and make sure somebody's in the room with you. And it's not always a quick fix because it's usually taken a long time to get to where you are and to establish establish the feeding um, scenario that you're in. And so that can take a little time to unwind. So so that's okay. It'll, it, it's, you've got time to, to work it out. It should be a priority. It's a really important foundation of ha- helping kids transition off their feeding tubes in a meaningful and lasting way. But um, take your time and, and just start is the biggest advice I have. And I will say that the one of the sneakiest parts of this is that it works for a minute. It does. So it feels like it's working. So it's you're not paying attention to yourself as much. Yeah. Because the kids have started eating. So yes. it feels like you're on the right track and it feels like you're working well together. So it doesn't hurt to take a look at your meal times periodically and and see what's driving some of that. Not that I want to undermine successful meals, but I think it's worth a check every once in a while it to is. see what the driver is for those meals because it can entangle things much later and lead to a mini success followed by less success later that you that is tricky and you and you don't know why suddenly things quit. Working. Yes, uh, and and uh, the this example of you know, stopping during the meal and seeing if a child reinitiates can also for a little bit older kids, but most kids be true for any child. If you're not, if you weren't to sit down and feed them, would they want to eat? And most of the time parents say to us in the beginning, before we help them wean their child off their feeding tube, will say to us, my child just doesn't seem to care about food. He could take it or leave it, or she could take it or leave it. And they don't notice if we skip a meal. But when you rebuild their skills and their relationship with food from the ground up and you really focus on those responsive foundations and you could take a look at our 
to weaning pyramid and the way the kind of what comes first in the progression from becoming an oral eater and then eventually thriving without the tube, um, it, it is worth um, the kids can. They most families, if not all families, that we start working with that say my kid can take it or leave it, isn't that doesn't end up being the case. It's the case under the current situations with tube feeds and with the current approach. It doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. So take a step back, take a look, get help if you need it, if you can't see it yourself or if you're not sure. And if you feel like you are stuck in compliance land, take a listen back to some of the responsive feeding episodes that we've done. Um, and that might be able to help you. Plus this, uh, pyramid that we'll link to in our show notes is a great place to start and just figuring out what to do now and what to do next. So we hope that this was helpful for you guys. We'll be back next week. We're really excited for this year. We have some really special guests coming up. Um, don't forget to review us on um, where, wherever you listen to your podcast and don't forget to like us on Facebook and on Instagram. We'd love to be a part of your journey and we'd love to get feedback from you guys about um, subjects in the tube weaning world that are interesting to you and answers to questions that you would really like to have. Hope everybody's well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week. 